Well, the title of the message is Confidence, No Fear. Confidence, No Fear. Here we are, of course, in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to particularly focus on verse 5 through 7. We're going to insert Romans chapter 8 as well, verse 15, just a little bit. Okay, now, I want to ask if you can relate to any of this. So just put your thinking caps on, all right? Can you relate to, you know, I'm, when I'm feeling good, I'm feeling good, when I'm looking good, <laughs> and I don't just mean your hair is looking good, I'm talking about like looking good in the eyes of others. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. You know, hey, when I'm looking good, when I am doing good, and when I'm performing well professionally, when those things are at play, hey man, life is good. I mean, I, I have a confidence. You know, I, a confidence almost like I feel like I could, could take on the world. When I am looking good, when I am doing good, when professionally things are going well, life is good. I have a sense of well-being. I feel strong. I feel confident. Man, I feel like I could just take on the world. Now, I asked if you can relate to that. I think we all can relate to that in one way or another. It's nothing intrinsically wrong with, you know, doing good and things going well professionally and maybe even looking good, you know. Though ultimately, it's more important that uh, we please the Lord than, you know, we're pleasing people. But I think we all can relate to that. And when those things are at play, you know, we're feeling pretty good about how things are going about our life. Here's the thing. There's a potential downside to all of that if... If one's identity is based upon those things, and we're going to call this a performance-based identity, and I'm asking if you can relate to any of this. Like, if your well-being and confidence is a performance-based identity, here's what you can expect. You can expect that your emotional life is going to be up and down like a yo-yo because it's going to be based upon how things are going how you are performing, whether you are looking good in the eyes of others, doing good, or professionally, things are going fantastic. And if your emotional life is up and down, I mean, that's not very fun. I, I mean, there are a variety of reasons why sometimes emotionally we could be going fantastic and, and not doing so well at other times. That happens, and that's part of life and things. But to just be on an emotional roller coaster, kind of this manic insecurity is not fun. Probably we've all been there, but it's not fun, right? You can also find yourself, if you can relate to these things, like, you know, I'm looking good, doing good, you know, professionally, performance is at its peak, you know, meeting my expectations of, so I just feel fantastic, and I have this great sense of confidence in life. Uh, we're talking about kind of a performance-based identity. What you can also expect is that you are a defensive person, maybe even controlling person. And here's why. You have to look good and be doing good to feel loved, and to feel accepted by others. And therefore, if you're criticized, even though it may be constructive criticism, it's really not constructive. It's actually crushing to you. It's a threat to your sense of well-being and to actually who you are because who you are is so much based upon your performance. Are you tracking? Raise your hand if you're tracking with me on this. Okay, watch. There's more. Can you relate to any of this? A performance-based identity produces actually a hypercriticalness and judgmentalism of others. 
As one person said, you don't feel loved unless you're morally superior. And therefore, you need to see the faults in other people. You need to listen to gossip and spread it. Gossip makes you feel powerful. It actually makes you feel lovable. And that's the reason it's salacious and it's delicious both to listen to and to give because it makes you feel superior. A performance-oriented identity has to feel superior to other people in order to feel loved. You have to be critical. You have to find fault in people everywhere. Or in other words, you have to learn to step on other people to promote yourself, you know, and to get ahead and to feel better about yourself. Can you relate to any of that? When I ask you, hey, can anybody relate to this? Like when they're looking good and doing good and, you know, professionally things are going great, you know, and performance is at a peak and, you know, you're getting attention and you're getting response and affirmation and things. You feel fantastic and you have great confidence in, in life and things. Just take on the world. I mean, we all can relate to that in one way, shape, or form, but there's a downside to all of that, you see. Because if I base my identity on those things, man, mostly I'm going to be a roller coaster. I'm going to find myself very defensive if, if there's a suggestion because it's like what you're doing, you're getting too close to actually the basis of who I am, which is so based on like my performance and things. And in addition, I have to, I have to feel morally superior. And one of the ways I do that is actually being hypercritical about others, pushing others down. And look, what also is accompanied with all of this stuff is just, is a bunch of guilt actually. Someone whose identity is like performance-based identity, inevitably, I mean, just guaranteed, you, you have to be carrying a lot of guilt. Because if one is honest with themselves, while there's God's standards that we all fall short of, so there's guilt on that level, we don't even uphold our own standards. So guilt has to dog us. And the impact of guilt is huge. It's much bigger than we realize. It has a big impact upon us biologically, mentally, and emotionally. Man, David wrote this. He said, when I refused to confess my sin, much of guilt in his life, my body wasted away. And I groaned all day long, day and night. Your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Look, I... I'm actually convinced none of us really understand the morphing, destructive realities of guilt except the Lord himself. I mean, the Lord really understands that we were not meant to live with this baggage of guilt, like I'm not meeting expectations, I'm not meeting God's standards, and I've blown and I'm just carrying this all around in my life. I'm convinced none of us understand just how damaging that is to our soul and to our life. The Lord understands it. I mean, he, he totally understands it. Look, look, if you go back to verse four, just look, look at that phrase there, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the, can someone tell me, world? Remember, I think it was last week we asked the question, man, you just take that he chose us? He chose us before the foundation of the world. You ask the question, what does that tell us about God? I mean, before the universe was ever created, um, he chose us? That speaks of omniscience. That speaks that you were more than just a mere form. He knew who you were. 
There was intentionality. There was a plan at play. At play. Uh, tells us that he's love. Tells us all kinds of things. And, and watch this. this. This plan that was at play that he chose us before the foundation of the world had to do largely to the, to the guilt issue of our lives. I mean, you know, if you ask the scientists, you know, what was taking place before the universe was created, here's what they will tell you. Ready for this? We don't know. <laughs> we just don't know. I mean, so did we all come from nothing? We talked about this. Or did we come from a creator? But how much did the creator know? Did the creator just kind of create the universe and throw out a bunch of seeds and, and you know, of life and then step away? How involved is he in our life and stuff? Well, those are very important questions. Because if there is no first mover of all things, i.e. creator, then we're just a byproduct of mindless nature. We're just a bunch of mistakes. And we've talked about this thousands of times. On the other hand, if, if the Lord is omniscient, he's eternal, no one created him, and choosing speaks of something specific, not something random, that gives us a wonderful sense of encouragement and settles us, especially the fact if you go down to verse seven, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of, can, can someone tell me, sins. It's like from the foundation of the world itself, the Lord was very concerned about the guilt issue. Before he ever created the entire universe, guilt sucks the confidence out of life. It drowns a person in hypocrisy. It smothers them in a masquerade. It's like, oh man, I just this guilt on my back, and I, it just teaches me to be an actor. And it's just, I, I, how do I get rid of this? I mean, sir, Arthur Conan Doyle, the man who wrote Sherlock Holmes, once pulled a prank on 12 prominent Englishmen. It's a true story. He sent them an anonymous note that said, all is found out, flee at once. And eight of the 12 guys left the country immediately. They're like, oh my goodness, what, why did they do it? Why, why so neurotic? Why are they freaking out? Because they're guilty, that's why. Because their life is not properly aligned. Hey, look, I asked if you can relate to any of this. Um, how many of you can relate to any of this? Just, just raise your hand. Okay, I think we all can, right? We can totally relate to this stuff. Look, look, the downward spiral even continues, the downward spiral of a performance-based identity. Because if I throw in belief in God, and it's married to the hip of a performance-based identity, then it's, it's not really about relationship with God. It's about him being a means to a particular end, a, an agenda that I have. It's not about me knowing him and worshiping. It's not about a child father thing, son, father, daughter, father. It's not about that. It's like, um, actually, I'll tell you what, I'll get on a performance treadmill, believe in you, do, sweat out some good works, and I have high expectation, God, you will meet my expectations in life. And, and, and if you don't, I'm gonna get really mad at you. And I just will get this, I'm just disillusioned and ticked off because you exist for me. And my performance-based identity is going to move you to meet my own expectation. It's like, I asked if anyone can relate to this. I think we all can. This idea of when I'm looking good, doing good, performing well professionally, man, life is good. 
I can imagine you never dreamed maybe it would bring such baggage in our life. And in two words, it brings fear and guilt. And that's no way to live. And here's where we make a transition. If we're talking with a first century person, I mean, Ephesians was written in the first century by the Apostle Paul. And we're living in Ephesus. And, and I'm talking, let's say I'm talking to the Apostle Paul who penned this. I'm talking to him, I say, you know, Paul, in the West, <laughs> it's like in the West, um, a lot of idolatry. What do you mean idolatry? Be specific. Okay, I'll be specific. A lot in the West, in America, it's like, One's identity is based upon their job, based upon their material assets and things, based upon their relationships. I mean, um, basically we make created things, ultimate things, to give us what only God can give us. And Paul would say, oh, I could totally relate to that. I mean, that's, that's idolatry. That's what idolatry is. It's putting someone or something before Almighty God and looking to those things to deliver what only God can deliver. But here's what Paul would say. He'd say, you know, I, that whole performance based identity, that's kind of a new way of thinking it. I, I don't know if I'd put it in those terms. What Paul would say is, just this is very important, what Paul would say is, oh, oh, what you're really talking about is a slave mentality. <laughs> See, that's a slave. It's lots of slaves in the Roman Empire. And, and a slave's sense of well-being is based upon their performance. And if they're not performing well, they could be killed, expelled, sold, See, one of the chief objectives of the Spirit of the Lord here is to show Christians, to show us that we're actually children of God. And in doing so, it purges the taskmaster of fear, driven by performance. The Spirit reveals that our confidence in life is not based on performance. It's based on relationship with God in Christ. Did you hear that? See, look what the scripture tells us. Paul says in Romans, you have not received a spirit of, what's the next word you guys, of what? Slavery. Oh man, that performance-based identity, man, that's not us, that's not a Christian, that's, that's not what it is to know God, leading to fear. Again, but you've received the spirit, oh, of adoption, that's a metaphor, by the way. You wanna know what the meaning really is behind the metaphor, we'll talk about it. We're gonna to get to the text in a little bit. Receive the spirit of adoption as sons, by which, oh man, the Almighty becomes our papa, our daddy, <laughs> our grandson, Greg, number three, the new and improved Greg Denham, you know, I've talked about him, right? He calls his daddy, Da. And it's, that's his affection that he calls him da. You know, that, that's his affectionate term to, of, to his father. And here's the thing. The Spirit wants to open our eyes of understanding to the truth of actually this passage, this doxology that runs on and on in this one colossal monstrous sentence from like verse 3 down to verse 14. It's so compact. But the core of it is actually verse 5. The core of what Paul is communicating about the truth of who God is and who we are in Christ is, is verse five of having 
predestined us or have a plan in place to adopt us as, can someone tell me, sons by Jesus Christ. And we started to talk about that last week, but just be reminded, adoption as sons is a reference to the first, first century Roman adoption. And this means that Paul is using it as a metaphor, the point of which is not the metaphor. The point is the meaning behind the metaphor. And in short, there was nothing in the Roman Empire that changed one's status as did Roman adoption. Nothing. And it was a legal procedure, and it generally was like, you know, some guy, older guy didn't have an heir, and, and if he took a liking to a younger man, he would approach him and said, look, look, will you be my son? And if he accepted it, if three things took place. All debts are canceled. The son owes no one anything. So let's just say, you know, some guy, we'll call him uh, George, has, you know, a debt of $20,000 on his visa or something like that, or owes on some house. If he accepts being a son, if he accepts adoption, which actually in the original language is sonship, in the Roman Empire, he owes nothing. Absolutely zip. And the son becomes as wealthy as his father, immediately gets the father's name, and immediately becomes the heir of everything the father has. And there was nothing in the known world 2,000 years ago that changed one's status like so drastically than to be adopted, you know, in Roman adoption. And Paul is referring to Roman adoption. The point isn't so much, you know, the metaphor. It's the meaning behind the metaphor. And he's trying to communicate, I'm just telling you, in Christ, things radically change. Everything changes for you. Now, we talked about this last week, but the metaphor kind of breaks down because some of you have adopted children. God bless you. I have dear friends that have adopted many children. I mean, and, and for you who have adopted children, you know you can give them everything, everything, everything except your chromosomes, except your DNA. But would you believe it if I told you that Christians actually... And this is, you know, the metaphor breaks down. We're not actually adopted so much that the adoption is to communicate the status change that takes place in Christ between the Father uh, in, 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 in Christ. We are actually born into the family. And we actually, we receive God's spirit. Peter would write the divine nature of God. He indwells us. So it's like we actually get the Lord's DNA and everything changes. Hey, communication changes now. I mean, look, if, if you're a son, okay, and, and girls are sons too, by the way, and this is a metaphor, right? If, if you have now a relationship, like a son or a daughter to the father, if, if you are a child, everything changes because the basis of your relation with God is not a performance-based relationship, but... It's now love. It's a, it's a love relationship in Christ. And, and, and as I said, it impacts everything. It impacts how you communicate. I mean, you don't see a five-year-old. I mean, we've had four of them at one time. You don't. None of our children at five years of age ever approached me and said, Daddy, Daddy, listen, do you have a minute? I, mean, I, I don't want to bug you. I mean, I, I know you're an important person and stuff. You've got a lot on your plate. I mean, no five-year-old approaches their dad that way. No way. 
They just barge in and they just start dumping and they start communicating and they start trying to persuade and manipulate. No, anyways, no. So they just like, they go for it, right? I mean, when you look at God and say, you know, he's never gonna answer this prayer because of what I've done. And, and he's not gonna answer this prayer because it's too small to bring to him. You're talking like a slave, not a child. I mean, if we get the sonship, if we get the adoption, then the Almighty becomes Abba. It becomes Papa. It's just, oh my goodness. And this is one of the most important ways you can learn about whether or not you still have a performance-based identity, i.e. slave mentality versus a son mentality. It's in how you communicate with them. Isn't that awesome? It's like, I, I mean, today, just he's your papa, abba. He wants you to cast your cares upon him. He wants to bring, he wants you to, he wants you not to carry your anxieties by yourself. He promises, like, don't, you know, like, don't be anxious for nothing. Like, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Hey, bring it, bring it to Papa. <laughs> bring it, don't carry it by yourself. Bring it to me, and I promise you I'll give you a peace that surpasses understanding. Philippians chapter 4. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children? Not subjects, not an employee, children. Children of God. I mean, you ever wonder why Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, a child's relationship is not based on performance or even understanding. It's based on love and trust, and that changes everything. It's like our father says, look, I, I never called you to totally get it and totally be able to wrap your mind around it. I mean, that's not the relationship between a child and a a parent, a father. That's, that, the basis of that relationship is not understanding. It's love. It's trust. And how it changes everything. My friend, Greg Laurie, who is preaching in Dallas, it's gonna be projected live here next week. And man, you, I want everyone to come out and bring a friend. And if you can't bring a friend, come yourself. But he tells a story about his son Christopher's firstborn son who was tragically killed in a car accident years ago. He talks about how he used to take Christopher to Toys R Us. And so Greg would say to Christopher, well, what would you like to get? You know, and, and his father in, in the story, he tells it, Greg, Lori, the dad, is very motivated. He wants to totally bless his son. So he takes him to Toys R Us, you know, and he's having a lot of fun too, and, and he wants to play with the toys too. That's part of it. But he's like, well, well, Christopher, what would you like to get? You know, and so Christopher would pick a few things. It really wouldn't satisfy his dad. He's saying, well, you know, what about the higher shelf stuff? You know, would you be interested in this? And ultimately, it just got to a point that Christopher, when he'd walk into Toys R Us, he'd just say, you know, dad, um, <clears throat> 
Why don't you just choose for me? <laughs> you, know, you just make the choice. So if you go back to verse 3, when it tells us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, I mean, that's a whole lot bigger than Toys R Us. So you just walk down the aisle of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And one of the aisles is um, Philippians 4.9, you promised to supply my needs, Father. You promised this. I walk down the aisle. This is the needs aisle. It's like, hey, here's what a child does. You choose, Lord. I mean, you just choose. I'm going to trust you on this. You, choose. you know my needs. You choose. I am the most wonderful father there could ever be. Can I hear an amen to that? It's like, Father, you promise not to withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. Lord, you choose. Okay, I'll go down another aisle. You promised all things work together for the good. To those who love God and are called according to uh, your purpose, Father, you, you choose. You choose it. I'm a child. I'm a child of the king. I mean, the almighty is my father. Father, you promised I would not be tempted beyond my ability to handle it and that you would make a way of escape. Lord, then you just choose because sovereignly you are in ultimate control. I'm gonna trust you here. Father, you promised that in Jesus, nothing shall separate me from your love which is not some abstract idea, you know, filled with, you know, pictures of hearts and all kinds of things. It's really concrete. It's always redemptive and provisional. Then it's like, you, you choose. Father, you promised the help of the Holy Spirit if I just ask. So I'm going to ask for your help, Lord. And you choose. And being a child of God, a son, man, it changes everything you see. And the confidence that I have in life is not based upon whether I'm looking good. That's not the core of my confidence. Or whether I'm meeting my own expectations, my own standards, or professionally things are going well. Man, that's a, you have to be careful. That's a major trap, a big time trap that brings all of this crazy baggage of fear and guilt. Being a child of God, a son, changes everything, even how you view suffering. Let me ask you a question. I want you to be honest. The last time you were suffering and things were going difficult, did you think God was punishing you? No, no way. No way. There's enough punishment on the cross. Jesus hung blood and gave his life for us on the cross. I mean, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Listen, um, let me challenge you on this because I need to be reminded of this as well. So if things are not lining up very well and you're thinking, hey, God's punishing me, that's a slave mentality. <laughs> I mean, Paul would say um, that scripture, you know, I pinned there in Romans, like that's just not, that's, that's not Christianity. I mean, you're a child, you're a son. I mean, this, this fear, slavery thing, performance base, no, that's not what reality is. 
You're a child of the king. My goodness gracious, Romans 8, 1. There is no, now therefore no condemnation, no punishment. You know, punishment, for those in Christ, punishment is to inflict penalty. The focus of punishment is actually on the past, what you've done wrong. The attitude of punishment is anger. Now, does, does the father punish us? Absolutely not. He, he disciplines us. He trains us. Oh, sure. Because that's a whole other thing. <laughs> the purpose of discipline is to promote growth. And the focus of discipline is actually on the future, what you can be. And the attitude behind discipline is total love. And you have, and have you forgotten Hebrews 12.5 says the encouraging words, God spoke to you as his children. He said, my child, don't, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you for the Lord disciplines those he loves. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is, is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Our Heavenly Father is a perfect trainer. I mean, just think of an athletic trainer. You get a good one, they're, they're worth a lot of money. Because you're at point A, and they want, they, they're, they're going to get you to, to B. Now, here's the thing. They're not going to get you to B by just showing you a video of, like, some muscle-bound guy or something. And that's what you need to be. You need to go. They're not going to even get you by just showing you how strong they are. They're going to get you there incrementally. They are really good. They, they know how to get you incrementally from A to B, and that's like... A thousand little parts, and they're just going to work on it and work on it. One cumulative value, and it's just, and ultimately, boom! You just, oh, then you get to, you get to be. Well, the Lord looks at us, and He's just, He's just a perfect, beautiful trainer. It's, his love is redemptive, and His objective is actually to grow us more like the Lord Jesus. That's what He's doing in your life. You know what this frees us up to do. If everything changes as a son from the fact that the basis of my relationship is not a performance-based thing, communication changes, I don't have to understand everything, it's based on trust and his promises. The issue of suffering changes. It's like, he's not punishing me. If anything, he will not waste any pain in my life. Because we live in a broken world, he's going to somehow, some way, turn it around and grow us by it. Somehow, some way. He promises to do it. You know what that ends up doing? It really frees me up then just to remain teachable. My mind is renewed. I, I'm open to change and growth through the various seasons in life. And the core reason for this is because a son's acceptance is not based on performance. And therefore, if the Lord's trying to get my attention or if there's some form of correction that he wants maybe to heal a brokenness in my life and move me forward, um, actually, 
my, my ears are really open. Sons who are assured of the love of the Father. We're talking sons in Christ and daughters in Christ who are assured of the basis of the relationship is not performance, but it's being in Christ are really good listeners. Because like to repent, which just simply means to change the way you think, more aligned with the truth of who the Lord is and what his will is for our life, to repent, man, it's like being born again. It's awesome. This is an opportunity to grow. And so therefore, a child, a son of the king, of the heavenly father, is a great repenter and continue, continues as willing to make an adjustment, make an adjustment, make an adjustment because um, my identity is not in some performance. It's in Christ. I can relax. I have his love. Lord, what do you want to say to me? How, how can you be glorified in my life? But there's more. The issue of guilt and sin are so different as a son or child. I mean, look at verse 7 again. Redemption, redemption through his, everybody say the next word, blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is a really, really big idea. And my goodness, this is like the third week we've just hovered over this. Let me give you a few more details. The term redemption is a loaded term. Generally, it speaks of a rescue from one state to another. Like if you go to a garage sale and you see this old bike, but you know it's a really good one. It's like a Schwinn and you buy it, like, I don't know, 19 bucks or something. And you take it home and you clean it up and it's like, and, and it's fantastic and you've redeemed it. You've taken it from this rusty state to this beautiful glorified state. You, you've redeemed the bike. But there's more because the word redemption translates a Greek word that literally means to pay a ransom. So it carries the idea of, an exp- listen, an expenditure, a cost to get something out of captivity, to get something that's confined. Ransom implies payment, cost, expenditure to release a person from being stuck in a place they can't get out of. And in this context, stuck in fear. Stuck in guilt. Stuck in sin. And the rescue is the payment The rescue is the payment of the debt of sin. And the payment involved the greatest moral beauty of someone actually giving their own life. And that someone was God's own son through his blood. And one of the ways you can tell a true son or child of God is that they grow fonder and fonder in the praise of the glory of his grace through his blood because it brought us into relationship with God on the basis of love, not our performance. And Jesus said, no man has greater love than this that he would lay down his life for his friends. And then he went and laid his life down for us. And when he was celebrating the Passover meal, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
See, let me just repeat this. Like one of the ways you can tell a child or a son, daughter of, of the Lord, you know, son speaks of positions, a metaphor. What's the meaning behind it? We were talking about one of the ways you can is like, oh my goodness gracious. It's like my applause gets louder and louder and louder to the praise of his incredible grace because he redeemed me by his own life, his own blood. And it's like there's no more wonderful moral beauty than to see someone sacrifice or to stand in the gap and to give and to help and to to, to, to give it all for the benefit of others. There's just, that, that is just off the charts. And that, as believers, continues to win us and change us. Can I hear an amen to that? I've, I've told this before. My father wrote me an email years ago. And on the subject, it was my hero. My dad's 84 years of age. I'm so glad he's alive. Kind of an even-tempered individual. I wish I had that. (laughs) Um, But I want to read this to you. He said, a few days ago, I had a flashback regarding an incident when I was eight years old. It was the summer of 1938. And I was visiting my mother's mom and dad in La Follette, Tennessee. And the day had started like most normal summer days. My grandmother had awakened as usual at 5 a.m. to see that all the restaurant cooks and waitresses were on time. And my days there always rushed by shopping with my granddad, pumping gas for tourists, and I'm sure getting in the way during busy times. And now it was about 9.30 p.m. The evening was warm and humid. Granny had just finished balancing all the cash register money with the meal receipts for the day. This was her last task for the long day. And my granny and papa and I were sitting outside the restaurant, a summer evening ritual before bedtime. Granny would small talk about the unusual customers that day. Papa usually talked about our next trip to the lake for fishing. A sensitive subject for granny because gone fishing meant she would manage the restaurant all day. And it was quite a quiet evening sitting outside. The town noises and car traffic had stopped for the evening. And suddenly, out of the dark night, a menacing, almost wild-looking man approached where we were sitting. And he demanded money. And Granddad, angry and irate, told him to get off the property and stay away. And after a few more angry words, the man left. Nervous and frightened, Granny wanted to go inside and lock the doors. And as we entered the restaurant, Granddad went to the office to get the door keys. And we were startled when the wild man slammed his way through another restaurant front door. He was rushing directly where Granny and I were. And in his right hand, he was waving a long switchblade knife. Granddad was much further from this weird guy than we were. And my Granddad, about 5'7", 195, I don't remember ever seeing him run But that night he moved into this crazy guy's space faster than a cheetah on steroids. My dad's good at metaphor there. He said, I remember hearing a crushing blow. And the guy went flying through the glass door. Granddad followed him outside. And at 
at least one more crushing blow was landed. Now the guy was helpless lying on the concrete driveway. When Granny and I followed outside, blood was gushing from a long knife wound cutting through Granddad's shirt, starting from the top of his left ribcage to his waist. The police took the crazy guy to jail. We took Granddad to the hospital. For the rest of his life, he carried a very long knife scar. I was too young to expressly clearly, to express clearly, quote, he was my hero, end quote. I remember it was a good feeling to know my granddad could fight the bad guys and protect those he loved and cared for, like the cowboy heroes I saw in the movies every Saturday. Now I am sorrowful that I never said those words, my hero to him. His generation was uncomfortable with displays of affection When you cared for someone of the same gender in those days, it was expressed through courtesy, respect, and kindness. I'm sure he knew I loved him. You know, one of the things, if if Paul was here, he might say, he said, you know, I've come to the conclusion in my life there's nothing more greater to glory in in the cross of Jesus Christ because it is there he gave it all for us. It was a demonstration of his love. It was there that he actually, he took the knife for us, if you will. He paid the debt and sin is a debt. You can't just make it go away. It's a debt. Someone has to pay it. He paid it for us. And so I I look at the love on the cross and the justice of God on the cross, all of those things taking place on the cross, that, that love that was demonstrated that speaks to us, does it not? That the basis of our relationship with the Father is in Christ. And that basis that we have of relationship with him is not based on, on what we have done or what we are doing or ever will do, but all of what the Lord Jesus has done for us in our place. And as Timothy Keller writes, this is, this is not just the way you know you've received every spiritual blessing. It's the way the spiritual blessings actually work themselves into your life. There is no more powerful narrative structure. There is no greater moral beauty than a story of someone giving his life. And yet that's what the Lord has done for us. So listen, today... <laughs> He wants you to be a good receiver because he paid it all for you. He he, he doesn't want any of us leaving here that our identity is like performance-based identity. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Just raise your hand. You got that? Okay, that's a slave mentality, man. He, he, he had a plan in place that we would be adopted, metaphor, Roman, 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 okay, adopted as sons, sonship, and that changed everything. And guess what? We've only just begun to learn what that really, really means. As we continue to study through Ephesians, we're just going to be like, oh my goodness gracious, that's, he is awesome. Can I hear an amen to that?